The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. I think it was several years ago, I was preaching through a passage that warned about greed, the danger of greed, and I gave the illustration that greed is one of those sins that's sort of like an eye sin. You're blind to it. You don't realize that you filtered everything through it. And so there may be many areas where you've drifted ethically that you're not aware of because you're now seeing through a colored lens. That week, someone in my church made an appointment with me. They came to my office and they shared over the time in our office together that there was something that had been going on in in their workplace for years, a very unethical thing that their employer had asked them to do. And because they cherished their position and they cherished their career goals, they had just gone along for years with these unethical practices. But then, having heard the word of the Lord afresh, the Spirit convicted. And I was so grateful to watch this courageous saint say that they were going to go back, take a stand, whatever the consequences of that would be. In today's passage, we read, one of the most well-known parts of the historical record of the life of Jesus. In fact, Pilate is one of the most well-known Roman leaders ever, even though his position really wasn't a huge one. But we know his name because of the person that he encountered. He encountered Jesus. But in this historical account, we need to also realize that some of the very struggles Pilate had may be struggles that we are prone to as well. An indecisiveness about what is right, though we know clearly what is right, and we try to delay making a decision towards what is right. Or think also of the fear of man. What will other people think? And that causes us to not do what we know is right. Or a desire to preserve at all cost our position and our status that again would cause us to not do what is right. Perhaps actually in your own life, you, like that person in my church then, are facing an ethical dilemma in your career. Or perhaps in a relationship you have interpersonally, you know of something between you and someone else that is not right. But you're afraid to take that step of obedience because you don't want to be alone. You don't want friction or for whatever reason. Or perhaps you have an internal struggle within your own heart, within your own mind. You know what you should be desiring, but you're struggling. You know what you should be thinking, but you're struggling. Today's passage is for you. Now, it will share some things that are difficult, but it will end with hope. So let's read this real historical record, realize the similarities we have in our own sin struggles, but then find powerful hope that can help us change. This morning's sermon is titled, Jesus and Pilate. And let's walk through some of the verses that our brother just read. Chapter 27, let's begin in verse 1 and 2, because we haven't been in Matthew for a couple of weeks. Let's remember where we are and what's happening here. Matthew 27, verse 1 and 2. Notice it's the chief priests and elders that are taking counsel against Jesus to put him to death. That has been their revealed motive for chapters now in the Gospel of Matthew. In verse 2, they bind him and lead him to Pilate, the governor. The reason they lead him there is they've already, as the Sanhedrin, sentenced Jesus to death unjustly. But in order to actually murder him, they need Roman authority because Rome is still the empire at, at the time. And so without Roman approval, they cannot put anyone to death. 
And so they're going to Pilate to try to get a quick decision and to coerce the desire that they have. Now, Pilate has a ruthless reputation. In Luke 13, verse 1, Luke tells us that there were some at that present time, Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And beyond the biblical record, which is infallible, we also have some historical records like authors like Josephus that write about Pilate's incredible cruelty. So here, the Jewish religious leaders go to Pilate, a man known for being cruel. Let me tell you three things actually about Pilate that are important to know for us to understand the passage. Though Pilate was known for cruelty, he was also on political thin ice. Pilate normally would preside in Caesarea, but when the Passover and the major feast would happen, he would go to Jerusalem, and his one job was to keep the peace. And if Pilate can't keep the peace, he has superiors who will take away his position. And so he has a vested interest in today's passage. That being said, he does have the power over life and death. He does have a certain level of power to make a key decision. But what's so interesting about this passage is Pilate, who was notorious for being ruthless, here pauses and is frozen. He's unsettled. I believe that's because here he faces Jesus. And that changes everything for all of us. So now let's jump to verse 11. The driving question, if you have never read this passage before, if it's brand new to you, the obvious question would be, what is Pilate going to do? So verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, where did that question from? It seems like it's kind of out of left field. Why does he ask him, are you the king of the Jews? We haven't been in Matthew for a couple of weeks. Let me remind you what's happening. If you're really fast with your Bible, you can follow me. But if you want to just listen, you can do that. We're going to jump back one chapter and trace what's been happening very quickly. In chapter 26, in verse 3, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So we know what the Jewish religious leaders want to do. They want to murder Jesus. Why can't they do it right away? Verse 5 They said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So now they're plotting and thinking, we really want to murder Jesus. How can we find a way to do it that won't also stir up the people? And that's Matthew 26, verse 16. At that exact time, Judas Iscariot comes to them. And in verse 16, they realize Judas will do this for 30 pieces of silver. Now notice verse 16, from that moment... He sought an opportunity to betray him. So now we have two strands coming together. The Jewish religious leaders are intent on murdering Jesus. Judas is intent on betraying Jesus. Providentially, these come together at exactly the time Jesus predicted he would die. Now they realize in order to murder him, they need some sort of testimony against him. So that's now verse 59 of chapter 26. The chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony. They wanted someone to lie because they knew nobody could tell true things about Jesus that were bad. But verse 60, they found no one, though many false witnesses came forward. But they needed corroboration. So leading into verse 61, and then this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And now the Jewish religious leaders had what they needed. They had corroboration that Jesus said he could destroy the temple and rebuild it. Now, we know that Jesus was talking about his body, but that was enough of a charge to say that Jesus would mess up their political, religious traditions. And so on that, 
they're able to condemn Jesus. But that, listen, won't be enough for Pilate to murder Jesus. So what do these evil, manipulative Jewish religious leaders do? They change the accusation. The accusation before was, he said he is going to destroy the temple. But they know Pilate's not going to murder him for that. So they change the accusation. And they say, oh no, Jesus said that he is a king. He said that he wouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. Which he actually said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Now Matthew doesn't record that. And let me tell you, normally as a preacher, what I like to do is stick with the gospel that I'm in and not share the other three perspectives. But Matthew leaves some, some very uh, confusing gaps here. That So I want to bring out to you Luke 23, which tells us exactly what they said to Pilate. They said to Pilate in verse 1 of Luke 23, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he is a king. Now do you understand why Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews? So the question was, are you a king that's going to mess up Roman authority? All right, now we're back to our text. Matthew 27, verse 11. Matthew 27, verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? How will Jesus answer such a question? Jesus' answer is very interesting. The text says, Jesus said, You have said so. I think Craig Blomberg helps when he says a good way to translate that in English would be your words, not mine. Your words, not mine. It's an indirect but affirmative answer. In, in essence, Jesus is saying this. Jesus is saying, yes, you've said it. I am king of the Jews, but I'm not king in the way you tend to think of king. As is recorded in John 19, Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. When you hear king, you think of Rome. But guess what? Rome rises and Rome falls. And so does every other nation. But Jesus is a king of an eternal kingdom. He's a king greater than what they could expect. But this is the last thing Jesus says before the cross. He doesn't speak to anyone else after quickly giving Pilate this short answer. So what did Pilate think of his answer? Well, in Matthew 27, 37, when Jesus was crucified, what did Pilate have nailed above his head? This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Pilate missed what Jesus was trying to tell him. Your horizon needs to expand. I'm King of an eternal kingdom. Pilate just monikers him King of the Jews. But now notice verse 12 in our text, Matthew 27, the next verse, verse 12. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, Jesus gave no answer. So Jesus did answer Pilate's question. He put the onus back on him, but he did answer. It was enough of a defense to show that he's innocent. It was also enough of an answer to expand Pilate's horizons. Jesus is king of an eternal kingdom. But to the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus gives no answer. Why? Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is being mute because he came to offer his life a ransom for many. His silence is to secure his sacrifice for our sin. Verse 13, then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? 
But Jesus gave no answer. Not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Don't forget, this is not at all like American jurisprudence, where we have trials, where we have appeals, where we have time before sentencing. If you come before Pilate and he doesn't like what you have to say, you die that day. So Pilate is used to people groveling, pleading, begging. Jesus says nothing. Pilate is stunned. Who is this person that wouldn't try to defend himself when I hold the power of life and death? Pilate then doesn't know what to do. What do I do with this Jesus? And so what he actually does next is he bounces Jesus over to Herod Antipas, which isn't recorded here in Matthew 27. Herod wants Jesus to do tricks. The text says Herod wanted him to do miracles, to do signs. Jesus wouldn't do them. And so Herod was mad and mocked him and sent him back. And that leads us back to our passage now, and that's verse 15. Pilate, trying to evade responsibility and trying to evade making a decision, makes the decision of indecision. And so he passes the decision about Jesus to the crowd. Verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Verse 17, so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate found no fault in Jesus. Herod found no fault in Jesus. And so now they give it to the crowd to make a decision. Barabbas, the Greek word explains, was a murderous rebel. And here at this time, there was a custom that at Passover the Roman governor would give the Israelites an opportunity to have someone spared. And that was probably because it was a way to quell anti-Roman sentiment and to keep people satiated for a little while longer. Pilate obviously then assumes that the crowd will surely choose to release Jesus the Christ. Of course they wouldn't choose Barabbas. In fact, the Greek word used for Barabbas is the Greek word lestai, which means murderous rebel. And the Greek word used for the two that are crucified on the two crosses next to Jesus is also lestai, meaning that they were all three murderous rebels. Have you ever wondered why three crosses were already ready to go? The answer is because they were probably for Barabbas and these two other murderous rebels, meaning Jesus literally took the place of Barabbas in the center cross between his compatriots. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, so look in verse 18. For Pilate knew that it was out of envy that the Jewish religious leaders had delivered him up. Pilate knows he's dealing with an innocent man because he understands the politics of the day. He knows that these Jewish religious leaders are motivated by envy. Furthermore, Pilate's own wife cautions him not to do this. Look in verse 19. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. The Bible doesn't tell us anything more about this dream and whether or not its providence was biblical. But it has stuck with us in history. 
Dorothy L. Sayers, in her play, A Man for All Seasons, has this line from Pilate's wife. She says, All I can remember in my dream is a crowd of people saying over and over, Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. And indeed, Pilate's reputation is now one for one with his choice to have Jesus crucified. Verse 20, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Notice that the Jewish religious leaders are tilting the crowd towards the destruction of Jesus, a crowd that on Sunday had said Hosanna in the highest, now Friday, is pushed by the Jewish religious leaders to cry, crucify him. Verse 21, the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. John records that what happened next historically was a flogging of Jesus. Pilate hoped that this would abate the crowd's lust for murder, that they would see that he had been flogged and they would calm down. So the next thing, chronologically, verse 23. And Pilate again said, why? What evil has he, Jesus, done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Now Pilate does something very interesting. He tries to declare himself innocent. Verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. The hand washing is a symbolic act to declare innocence, but of course it does not prove his innocence, but rather his guilty conscience. Pilate allows Jesus to be crucified so that Pilate can take care of Pilate. Pilate capitulates to the crowd to protect his own career. Pilate lets a man he knows to be innocent experience the cruelest form of torture and death so that Pilate will not risk political damage. Verse 25 is even more harrowing. And the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. This tells us that though the crowd was encouraged by the Jewish religious leaders, they are all complicit. Peter will make that point explicit when he preaches to them in Acts chapter 3. And he says in verse 12, Men of Israel, this Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him, you killed the author of life. And Peter concludes his sermon to them, repent. Honor children, by the way, does not mean that all Jews for all generations, for all history, but it's a Semitic way of saying, we'll incur this decision because we're sure we're right. Of course, we should acknowledge that some have wrongly taken this verse in a racist, anti-Semitic way, and we surely should not take it that way because remember, Peter and Matthew are Jews, the early church are Jews. They're pointing out that those who were there did something horrendously sinful. And also we have to admit that it was our sin that held him there as well. So the guilt that we see in this crowd is surely guilt that must be seen in ourselves. Verse 26 is devastating. Verse 26, Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Scourging 
was the use of a particular whip of flagellum. It had pieces of bone and lead in leather tongs. D.A. Carson writes, the victim was stripped and tied to a post. It would reduce the flesh to bloody pulp and would open the body until bones were visible and entrails were exposed. It not infrequently ended in death, and its purpose was to weaken the prisoner to secure their death. Andreas Kostenberger writes, even though Jesus survives, the scourging, the beating endures and ensures that he will die before sundown. And then Kostenberger points out something very interesting. He writes, this final verdict came about at the sixth hour, according to John, on the day of the preparation of Passover at the exact time that lambs would be slain for the Sabbath dinner. Jesus' prediction from Matthew 26 that he would die on Passover is now fulfilled at that exact moment, but fulfilled through the free and evil actions of everyone involved. The passage is no doubt a heavy one, and so what it first requires us to do is to engage in difficult examination. Because this passage reveals the actions of people who have motives that, frankly, might be rather similar to our own when facing dilemmas or crossroads of right or wrong. So two applications for you this morning. Here's the first, number one. Everyone is personally, morally responsible for our response to Jesus. Everyone. Perhaps more than we've realized till this morning, we are actually a little bit more like Pilate. When we know what's right and we know what's wrong, we lean towards what's wrong because we sweat our career. We wish to protect our lifestyle. We want to preserve our position. And then something very endemic to our moment in American culture is we still declare ourselves innocent. I want to make sure we understand something very important. Did you know that if at the end of something we say, well, I don't feel bad about it, that doesn't change anything. If at the end of something we say, I don't think I did anything wrong, that doesn't change anything. You and I are not the ultimate judge of ourselves. We can declare ourselves innocent where God knows us to be guilty. Indeed, humans for centuries have done awful things to other humans and declared themselves innocent. The reality is that there is a judge above ourselves and greater than ourselves. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are imprisoned. And when the early church gathers together, men and women, to pray, they pray not for release but for boldness. And when they pray for boldness, they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage against the Lord's anointed? And then they say this in verse 27. For truly, in this city of Jerusalem, were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Pilate said, I'm innocent. The church said, you're guilty. Because the reality is one made by God. So perhaps... We're doing what's wrong, and like Pilate, we're declaring ourselves innocent. Or there's someone else in this text we might be a little similar to. Perhaps we're like Barabbas. Barabbas must have thought, I have a get-out-of-jail-free card. I mean, here I am, second lease of life, not realizing there's still a judgment to come. Think how often the Bible says how God has been patient. Why? To give us opportunity to... Repent now. 
Do not confuse delay with a declaration of innocence. Further, we could be like the Jewish religious leaders. Think how many people are hostile to God. They argue against his very existence, and then they have the gall to act like they haven't loaded the evidence. The Jewish religious leaders have made up false testimony. Surely we do the same today when we argue, there's no God to whom I'll answer. You've loaded the deck. Or perhaps we're like the crowd. We just go along with the majority. And if it goes bad, we'll blame the leaders who made bad decisions. But Peter rightly holds the crowd accountable too. Here's what I think is the most striking thing. Look at the end of Matthew 27, verse 62. The next day, after the day of preparation, this is after the crucifixion, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. This is the last time he's mentioned in the Gospels. And they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was alive, after three days I'll rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made more secure until the third day. Lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse from the first. Now notice, these are Pilate's last words, verse 65. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. Do you see what Pilate's doing? He is literally trying to cover up his greatest sin. He is literally trying to bury the most evil thing he's ever done. And you know what happens to everyone who tries to cover their sin? The tomb rolls open. See, no one can hide before the all-seeing eyes of God who exposes us for what we really are. But I told you there would be hope. Here's what the hope is. Pilate, who tries to bury and cover the most evil thing he's ever done, should have noticed that the person who is totally innocent, exposed himself on the cross so that he would cover the sin of anyone who turns to him. See, the shock of the gospel is we try to hide our worst parts. Jesus was stripped and exposed to cover our worst parts and cleanse them eternally. We are indecisive and we push hard decisions to the future. Jesus decisively went to the cross. We fear what other people will think Jesus, though he could have had the rocks cry out, was willing to be abandoned by all, yet obedient to God, forsaken for our forgiveness. And we, who when our career is in jeopardy, our relationship is in jeopardy, our lifestyle is in jeopardy, will go into self-preservation mode to preserve what we have. Jesus emptied himself, sacrificed himself, and gave all he had. What Pilate should have seen is that Jesus was stripped so that his sin could be covered rather than trying to cover what would always eventually be rolled open. So to us today, what do we do with a passage like this? First this morning, if you haven't crossed that line from unbelief to belief, if you haven't crossed that line from rejection to acceptance, remember Jesus' first words, in his public ministry in Matthew four seventeen, repent, the kingdom is at hand. So you should turn to Jesus and rejoice that he's the kind of king that wore a crown of thorns and a robe of purple and died for your sin. 
Isaiah tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions. He went as a lamb to slaughter silent because it was the will of the Lord to crush him so that our sins could be atoned. But let me speak to us as Christians as well. As Christians, surely we struggle. As Christians, surely we don't always live the way we ought to. But notice how his initial followers lived in the book of Acts in these three areas. Rather than indecisively pushing decisions, they decisively obeyed. Rather than caring what the crowds wanted, they went against the grain of the crowds. And rather than trying to preserve their position at all cost, the earliest apostles and followers of Jesus were willing to lose anything short-term to be obedient long-term. Therefore, the very sins that kept Pilate from obedience when they're inverted are the very characteristics of a true disciple. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, as we transition to communion, we agree with the songwriter, ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It is our sin every single one of us in this room that has nailed Jesus to the cross. Lord, please deliver us from the pride that would wash our hands and declare ourselves innocent. We are all guilty. So the first thing we must do is confess our guilt. Lord, we are guilty of the blood of your son because we are sinners We sin by nature, we sin by choice, we reject your person, and we reject your good guidance. Lord, I thank you, though, that rather than trying to cover up our sin and act like it isn't there, if we will bring it to the light, there is someone who took it to the cross and destroyed its grip over us. So, Lord, I thank you that Jesus Christ was exposed so that our sin could be covered And that kind of covering never has a crack and it never rolls open again. So Lord, thank you for the glorious thought that you wash our sin white as snow and there's no condemnation. So any who will put their faith in Jesus don't have to sweat anymore. Lord, I also thank you this morning that by the power of Christ in us, these qualities can change. We can become people who are not overwhelmed with fear at what the crowd will think. We can become people who are decisive when there's a decision between right or wrong. And we can also become people who do not clutch to our own position or prominence, but who abandon it for the sake of obedience. Empower us in that and work through communion to point us to the cross again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.